Katie, um, would you like to introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, sure. Hi, uh, I'm Katie Butler. Uh, I've had the pleasure of working with Dr. Tramo closely with his Institute of Music and Brain Sciences project. And I'm a Music Men's Mind student volunteer from UCLA and aspiring professional in the world of music cognition. So I'm really excited to be here um, and excited to hear your thoughts, Dr. Tramo. Yeah, and my name is Brandon Carone. I also worked as Carol's assistant for Music Men's Minds. Um, I graduated from UCLA last year and have been interested in music cognition for as long as I can remember. Um, and I'm currently working at the UC San Diego Veterans Medical Research Foundation to conduct research on traumatic brain injury. So very cool. Well, our future's in youth, right, Carol? Yes. <laughs> so, um, two, two, um, propitious individuals for the future, I think. Yes. <laughs> well, um, it's my pleasure to introduce our first interviewee for the Music Men's Minds Public Education Podcast. Um, Dr. Mark Tremo, MD, PhD, is a neurologist affiliated with the Ronald Reagan UCLA Medical Center and the Los Robles Hospital and Medical Center in Thousand Oaks, California. He's also a lecturer at the UCLA David Geffen School of Medicine and the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music, and a lifelong musician and songwriter. A 2015 recipient of the UC President's Research Catalyst Award, Dr. Tramo has been awarded grants from the National Institute on Deafness and Communication Disorders, National Institute of Neurological Diseases and Stroke, Grammy Foundation, and other foundations to conduct research on the neuroanatomy and neurophysiology of music perception and cognition over 25 years. Aside from founding the world's first music and brain course at Harvard University, Dr. Tramo has given lectures on music and the brain at Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center, the National Academy of Sciences, Yale, Stanford, Duke, and numerous other world-class establishments. Uh, thank you so much for being here, Dr. Tramo. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Katie. Yeah. I personally, also Dr. Tramo, want to take this opportunity to thank you for all you've done silently and and, and in full audibility for Music Men's Minds. Uh, to meet you six years ago, we were just a seedling. And somehow you invited me on campus to meet your constituents, all of your national researchers. Um, I wasn't quite clear where we were going, but of course I was honored to have the, the, the introduction and the invitation. Um, you then handled a Q&A for us at the Semmel Institute when Serene Michelle Dillman launched our Fifth Dementia documentary that's gone out globally. And, and today, uh, here we are welcoming you as our first interviewee for our major step in academics and to connect Music Men's Minds acad further academically. And so I'm really on bended knee to see you today face to face. Wish we could have a hug. But those days, I think, are about a year or 18 months away, which is scary. Well, we're touching. It's just your and sound, the sound waves you're producing are touching my eardrums. So and we are in touch. And thank you. And, and As a neurologist and researcher, you have found both theoretical and clinical benefits of music. Why do you think music is not often utilized in our healthcare system and what might change this in future years? Well, one of the, so the short answer is economic. Um, 
So, you know, there's centuries of anecdotal evidence um, that music improves quality of life. Um, not so much mortality, right, but morbidity. Um, so in order for third-party payers like insurance companies and Medicare to pay for services, they have to see that an intervention, I think we're all realizing this now, it's become much more apparent with the pandemic that one has to do really fairly rigorous clinical trials before one can believe that something actually works. So this is one of the missions of our Institute for Music and Brain Science is to garner support to be able to do randomized controlled clinical trials with patient populations like the Music Men's Minds populations um, in order to demonstrate what the benefits might be. Um, currently, um, there's many music therapists, board certified music therapists. There's a new neuromusic therapy board certification that Michael Tout has developed that um, are, are very convincing about the potential benefits. But really until one sees randomized controlled clinical trials published, not in music therapy journals and not in nursing journals, but in reasonably high impact medical journals, um, it's the application of music in the clinical arena is always going to be ad hoc and out of pocket rather than um, supported by um, even to get hospital administrators interested in bringing music, which is maybe even easier than getting the third party payers, um, you know, to buy into the idea that they need to soundscape hospitals and improve the the ambiance of hospitals using arts and entertainment. Um, you know, there have to be data that are collected. Now, I don't think it's widely understood that all of these great drugs that we have for treating all these diseases, including all the diseases that the music men's mind population suffer from, that, that funding really doesn't come from the federal government. That comes from for-profit private sector and it's the pharmaceutical companies who are developing the drugs who sponsor the randomized controlled clinical trials uh, almost entirely and of those trials and uh, i don't know the exact number but the vast majority of those trials fail and part of the issue with the expense for new drugs is that there's so much funding that goes into trying any new drug if you only get one out of 10 that works, you have to you know, mine as much funding out of or profit out of that one that worked to make up for all the costs of the failures. So this is sort of the, the underside of this question of big pharma and the cost of drugs um, has a lot to do with the rigor that's required to get FDA approval and how often um, drugs fail, like our antibody tests for COVID-19 are, are, you know, they're not good enough.
to do mass screening. Um, we we're getting a taste of that in the diagnostic realm because of the antibody tests, but it's, it's even more difficult in the treatment realm. So the question then becomes, well, who is going to fund randomized controlled clinical trials that incorporate music? So, you know, we got some uh, small amount of funding from the Grammy Foundation and combined it with some philanthropic funds that the Institute got to be able to do our study in premature infants who were suffering pain from uh, blood tests uh, to use music to de-stress them after they have the test, right? Um, So it may, when we founded the Institute for Music and Brain Science in 2002, 2003, um, you know, we thought that, well, maybe the music industry would be what the pharmaceutical industry was to drugs. The music industry might be that for us to do the clinical trials. And a couple of, you know, I learned a couple of things. One was, you know, we thought, well, you know, our heroes are getting old and some of them are, you know, rather wealthy. So won't they buy into this, you know? And the issue there is actually a lot of the artists aren't that financially secure. Um, All you have to do actually, since we're in LA, is look at the Canyon Club in Agora Hills, uh, near where I used to live, to see who plays at this relatively small venue. Um, And it's like, you know, a lot of them are giants from, you know, my, from my youth. So it's, it's actually the case that a lot of entertainers are not as wealthy as you think they are to be able to be philanthropists. And it's, uh, you know, and, and our, most of our financial support at the Institute came from uh, Manhattan bankers from the very, you know, mostly business people from, from Manhattan who were either friends of mine from college or um, I had met through Harvard. So um, it remains a question of, yeah, Big Pharma has the payoff when they do develop a successful drug. Who's going to support randomized controlled clinical trials with music and what's going to be the payoff for them? Um, and to me, it seems like it's, you know, the payoff is altruism in and of itself and that it's going to require um, really philanthropic funds. And I think one of the great things about Music Men's Minds is what, um, what the, the foundation has been able to do is really rally a fairly large group of individuals with neurodegenerative disease and have um, the kind of relationship with them that would be needed if we were able to get some funding to do randomized controlled clinical trials. Music Men's Minds has the clinical material or potential clinical material for us to approach the patients through the foundation to say, oh, there's a randomized clinical trial on X. We're particularly interested in Parkinson's disease, by the way. Um, There's a randomized controlled clinical trial um, that we wanna do looking at, for example, drumming. And if it might decrease the fall risk in patients with Parkinson's disease. And when we do that study, we want to also collect some scientific data. My colleague, John Everson um, at UCSD is an expert in rhythm perception and production. And 
a top-notch scientist with extraordinary skills in being able to do things like measure movement vectors in 3D and quantify all the potential benefits. Um, so um, having a resource like um, Carol's Music Men's Mind, Ping's, Ping Ho's UCLA Arts and Healing, you've established a network of individuals who are open-minded and motivated who could potentially in the future provide the kind of clinical material in large numbers that we need in order to be able to do the randomized controlled clinical trials. The popular media is notorious for oversimplifying scientific findings. What are some common misconceptions that you've come across in the media that you would like to debunk? The music is a right hemisphere function. It involves both hemispheres. Mm -hmm. And um, there's no center, there's no music center in the brain. It's really a network of widely distributed uh, collections of neurons that participate in music cognition. Cool. All right. Thank you. For the members at Music Men's Minds, they're not only playing songs that they've heard in the past and that they've known for years, they're also learning new songs as well. And so how would you say that playing an instrument is different from simply listening to music from the past? So the memory literature emphasizes that there is no like one memory. It's like um, Joel would do when he you know talks about emotion. We use the word emotion, but when you actually do research on emotion, there is no emotion. It's either fear or anger or joy, and they all involve different parts of the brain. So there's no like one part of the brain or even one function that you can think of as just being emotion. So for memory, um, a lot of the research has pointed out um, and, you know, patient HM who didn't have a hippocampus on either side was one of the original experimental subjects to really teach us this is that so-called procedural memory, which the lay press calls muscle memory, or maybe more simply motor memory, that that, that is stored in a different part of the brain than episodic declarative memory, like when you need to come up with a name, which is the thing that bothers my Alzheimer and PIC patients the most and Parkinson's patients is the first thing they notice is, you know, they have trouble coming up with names, which by the way, by the time you're in your mid sixties is not that unusual, the literature shows. Yeah. Um, so the ability for, for the music men's minds, musicians to be able to learn new music is built up from the idea that they're not just learning the sound, they're learning how to make the sound. So they're encoding the music in procedural memory, at least in part. And in so doing, they're also drawing on motor skills that they developed and that are overlearned. I think that's another aspect of why remote memories like musical memories and Alzheimer's patients are relative, relatively preserved is they're quote unquote overlearned. In other words, you have heard that song over and over and over again your whole life. Um, so it may not be that often, 
but it has made its appearance in your experience repeatedly over the course of your lifetime. So what I think is happening with the music men's minds uh, patients is there a lot of the encoding and storage is done in terms of procedural memory so that when they're recalling it, they have that uh, to facilitate the, the retrieval of the memories and not, they're not just doing it auditorily, like trying to remember a new melody. What would you suggest to students who are interested in conducting music cognition research? Um, so I would say, take all your basic science courses. You know, you need those basic skills, those laboratory skills. You need to have, a, you know, a good foundation in neurophysiology and neuroanatomy. And, um, and I think maybe something that's not appreciated, experimental psychology. I mean, yes, psychology as a subject, but in particular, how to do an experiment. Yeah, in the tradition of experimental psychology. I mean, you know, I'd, I'd been through all my neurology training and was board eligible, but I learned how to do an experiment from Mike Zaniga and his assistant professors after I finished that training. Yeah. So, um, um, so that means usually in addition to taking the courses to get involved at some, in some level of research in a lab that's doing something that is relevant to what you're interested in. Um, and I think there are a lot more opportunities now for you. Remember, there wasn't even cognitive neuroscience when I was in college, yeah. right? I mean, Gazanica started that with George Miller in the 70s. So um, just seeing how a good psychologist does a good experiment, which you learn by reading the journals, but also by, you know, watching people do it, um, is really an essential component, I think, to, to developing the skill set that you need. Um, I think you don't, you, you don't need to do too much before going into graduate school. You know, you just need some exposure and you need your basic science courses. I think of all the things, um, as you know, I've shared with my students, is if you think you're going to pursue a career in science and do research, especially if it's going to be in the realm of cognition, learn how to program. <laughs> yeah. So um, currently, MATLAB and Python are um, languages that are in widespread use in in the laboratories uh, that do this this brand of research um, and it really and, and one of the reasons I did my physician scientist award as graduate school was so I could take um, computer programming and acoustics courses that I didn't have in my medical training yeah and even though I wouldn't necessarily do the programming Eventually, um, I would know how to do the programming and how to talk to a programmer about what I needed to do. Yeah. And that, that was essential for me to get any experiment done. Is I, you know, I needed to know how to write code. Yeah. I needed it to set up. I needed it to set up for data collection. I needed it for stimulus synthesis and calibration. And I needed it for data analysis. 
So um, it's a little bit difficult for many students to fit in, uh, especially because they're hard um, computer science classes. But I would strongly recommend anyone who's thinking about going to graduate school on doing experiments that involve um, experimental psychology or any kind of acoustics to um, at least take one course in C++ or MATLAB or Python um, so that you can at least understand how to set up your experiments and how to analyze data using um, a programming language. And, and I wouldn't say C or any of the ones that are kind of difficult. I think, you know, C is the one I had to learn. It's kind of rarely used. Yeah. But um, pretty much MATLAB is the widespread one. And because MATLAB's expensive, um, it, it's great. But because it's expensive, a lot of the students have been using Python, I understand, because it's freeware. Uh, I don't know that it has the um, toolboxes like MATLAB does, uh, which is important for auditory work because they have the signal processing toolbox, or if you're doing fMRI work, they have an imaging toolbox. But still, if you just know how to formulate the setup of the program, maybe not write all of the code, but really kind of understand what needs to be done, you'd have a leg up walking into graduate school that way. Yeah, and I think that's something I really appreciate about the cognitive science major is I got a, a good understanding of, you know, psychology, neuroscience, and computer science because, you know, we're not computer science majors, so we're not learning, like, front to back, like, how to program everything you need to know, but we got, like, I took an intro to MATLAB, Python, HTML, and C++, and, like, like I said, like, I don't think that I could go and get a job as a straight coder, but just having the basics and understanding of all those, like, has been really helpful in just talking to other people about that type of stuff. And, like, in research, it has been helpful as well. Yeah, and that was through the psychology department at UCLA? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know Peter Janata at UC Davis teaches a MATLAB course. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, I, it's great that the psychology departments are doing that. Yeah, I actually met Peter Janata at an APS conference. Um, it was in San Francisco in 2017, I believe. And there was a there was a symposium on the cognitive neuroscience of music. And so that was really cool for me to go in here and like go up and talk to him afterwards. He's yeah, super nice guy. Well, I would encourage all of the UC kids to be in touch with all of the individuals on UC Mercy. I mean, that's why why it exists is to give you an opportunity to communicate with some of us and maybe get some leads about, you know, what what research you could get involved with. It's a little tough for um, faculty with undergraduates because you can always spend usually a couple of weeks or a couple of months maybe in the summer and then maybe 10 to 15 hours a week. So a lot of faculty think, you know, well, the amount of time I put into an undergraduate student, it doesn't, you know, there's not a lot that actually gets done. It's more of a time sink than productive. But um, I would still encourage you to try to do that. And if anything, it's a way to figure out how you're going to do graduate school. Yeah. Another thing to mention for your audience is um, the Society for Music Perception and Cognition which was, you know, um, really a fledgling uh, society in the 90s, but really has grown enormously and has um, regular 
conferences around the world. It's an, it is an international society. Yeah. So um, some of them are outside the United States. Um, we have on the Institute um, education site, um, a number of the organizations, professional organizations that exist. I mean, it used to be the case that, you know, you'd want to belong to a few like Society for Neuroscience, Acoustical Society of America, um, you know, I belonged to those. And that was sort of, they wouldn't really have very much on music um, and science um, and still really don't. Although the Acoustical Society historically has made major contributions in, in music perception. But now the Society for Music Perception and Cognition has really grown. So um, those conferences for young people would kind of everyone is there showing their wares. So if you want to figure out, oh, you know, what are they doing here? Or what are they doing there? Is that the kind of research I want to do? Gee, that's not interesting. You know, I don't think I want to do that stuff. And, you know, you would get it. So I would encourage anyone who's thinking about graduate school to, um, to go to the Society for Music Perception and Cognition conferences and see what's out there. Yeah, and I, I was actually on their email list um, as a member. I wasn't able to go to any of the conferences, but just receiving the emails, like seeing what positions are open, you know, like a lot of them are too far ahead for me because they're like professorships and postdocs. Yeah. But just seeing like what's out there, it's like super motivating and like exciting, you know, to see that there is so much going on, even though it seems like such a small group of researchers who are conducting research on this. Yeah, conferences are how you get to meet people. Yeah. And, you know, you introduce yourself and say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a student at UCLA. I was a cognitive science major. I'm interested in the field. And, you know, we're always like your question implied, you know, we're really excited about young people who want to go into the field. Yeah. So, you know, you, you'll find a lot of a warm reception. Yeah, yeah, everybody's at those events, it. you know, and, and you have them captive at the posters. <laughs> yeah. The slide session. They have, they have no you, know, they, you have to stand at your poster. So, um, even if it's, and you know what else you get there is you get to talk to graduate students. Yeah, yeah. So it's sometimes, you know, the you really get the inside scoop from their student <laughs> yeah. on what yeah. they went through to get there and how they found it and what do they wish, you know, even more so than like someone like me who isn't in the same environment as you are now, yeah. that, you know, what was it like for them is more contemporary. Yeah, definitely. But I think yeah. at, at UCLA, um, you know, Marco Iacoboni, yeah. who's in psychiatry, um, at the Semmel Institute um, is actively doing research with fMRI and transcranial magnetic stimulation and very much interested in music and social neuroscience aspects of music. And Martin Monti in psychology and, um, and Marco is on our board at the Institute. And um, Martin Monti in psychology who's um, has a wide range of interests, consciousness, language, math. Um, but he looks, is doing some comparative work with language, math, and music. Um, and he's an fMRI guru. Yeah. Um, so those are two people within UCLA who are actively 
um, wanting to do experiments um, on music. Greg Bryant in communications studies works on um, vocalizations um, in the non-speech vocalizations, which is a wide open area that needs a lot, a lot more work needs to be done there. And Professor Bryant's did some really interesting research. So those are, those are three people on campus who are in the lab, uh, you know, doing research that you could approach. Yeah, and that's something that's really interesting to me, like fMRI research with music. Um, when I was applying for jobs this past year, it was a necessity to be trained in fMRI because I was not I was not able to learn that. I was in a cognitive psychology lab at, mm -hmm. at UCLA, and so I wasn't able to get that training. And I got trained in December, and like I really love it. I love trying to learn all of the extremely hard algorithms and like different ways of analyzing it but um yeah it's really interesting research